Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Biblical Studies. Our guest today is Rhiannon Graybill, the author of Are We Not Men? Are We Not Men offers an innovative approach to gender and embodiment in the Hebrew Bible, revealing the male body as a source of persistent difficulty for the Hebrew prophets. Drawing together key moments in prophetic embodiment, Rhiannon Graybill demonstrates that the prophetic body is a queer body. And, is very in, and its very instability makes possible new understandings of biblical masculinity. Prophecy disrupts the performance of masculinity and demands new ways of inhabiting the body and negotiating gender. Graybill explores prophetic masculinity through critical readings of a number of prophetic bodies, including Isaiah, Moses, Hosea, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. In addition to close readings of the biblical texts, this account engages with modern intertexts drawn from philosophy, psychoanalysis, and horror films. Isaiah meets the poetry of Anne Carson. Hosea is seen through the lens of possession films and feminist film theory. Jeremiah intersects with psychoanalytic discourses of hysteria. And Ezekiel encounters Daniel Paul Schreber's Memoirs of My Nervous Illness. Graybill also offers a careful analysis of the body of Moses. Her methods highlight unexpected features of the biblical texts and illuminate the peculiar intersections of masculinity, prophecy, and the body in and beyond the Hebrew Bible. This assembly of prophets, bodies, and readings makes clear that attending to prophecy and to prophetic masculinity is an important task for queer reading. Biblical prophecy engenders new forms of masculinity and embodiment. Are We Not Men offers a valuable map of this still uncharted terrain. Welcome to New Books in Biblical Studies, Professor Graybill. Thanks, it's wonderful to be here. Well, our first question is always uh, about how our authors came to be involved in biblical studies, and uh, maybe even a, a focus on how they came to be interested in the subject of the book that they are discussing. Sure. So I came to biblical studies through literary studies. When I went to college, I thought I wanted to be an English major. So during registration, I prioritized signing up for an English class, and then I needed one additional class. So I decided to take a Hebrew Bible class, and I just loved it. I was surprised by how much I love the class. And I love that the Bible is this book that is so familiar and is so full of things that you just don't that are actually not at all what you expect. So I remember the biblical story that really made me think, oh, I want to study this is a story in Exodus 4, 24 to 26, when uh, Moses is coming back about to be a prophet and do his heroic Moses thing. And then God tries to kill him in the middle of the night. And I remember thinking, oh, I grew up reading the Bible. What is this? And so I was just fascinated by these sort of moments of strangeness in this literature I thought I knew so well. But then also all the things I loved about studying literature, the methods, the kind of literary theory, bringing in feminist theory, things like that, were also things I realized I could do with the Bible. And so it just kind of grew naturally out of that. Yeah, I wonder how many people come into biblical studies because they read Exodus 4 and uh, have this moment of sort of shock and, and why have I never seen this before? Why have I never heard of this before? What is possibly going on in this story? I'm uh, sure I'm not alone in that. 
how did you come to be interested in in gender studies? Sort of a, a key component of your work, are we not men? How did how did that interest arise and develop? So I've always been a feminist and I've always been committed to thinking about and practicing feminist actions. And I got interested in feminist theory kind of at the same time I started being interested in the Bible. And so for a while, I thought of those as kind of two separate things. So there's the world of feminist theory. And then I started learning about queer theory. And then there's biblical studies. And then I discovered all of these wonderful scholars who've worked to bring the two together. So I fell into sort of reading a lot of that um, work from the 70s and the 80s about feminist approaches to the Bible. And that kind of led me into my project. What I realized was that there's been so much great work about women in the Bible, which was such an important concern in that first generation of feminist scholarship. And I realized that that allowed masculinity to kind of just slip by. So I got interested in thinking about a feminist approach to masculinity studies in the Hebrew Bible. Well, let's open with a, a particular image from the prophet Isaiah. You start out with uh, this this image of Isaiah stripped naked, walking the streets of Jerusalem for three years in Isaiah uh, 20. And you say that this this particular short narration, this, this prophetic sign act, uh, as it's sometimes categorized, allows us to talk about uh, the body in pain and the nature of shame and what it might mean to talk about bodies as queer all three of those being uh, really important concepts in your work. And so this, this image of the naked Isaiah is sort of a microcosm in some sense for some arguments you'll make elsewhere. Um, can you say what those, those categories are and why, what they mean and why they're important for understanding your interpretation of the prophetic male body? So throughout the book, I look for these images of prophetic bodies doing strange things. In some ways, my whole book is a polemic against that image of Charlton Heston as Moses, as prophet altogether and strong and powerful. So I think this Isaiah image is a great way to kind of enter into that project. So like you say, Isaiah is naked and he's walking around naked for three years. And usually this is explained as a metaphor. So his naked body represents something. So the body is the vehicle and the tenors and what the nakedness is supposed to be about. And I find that a lot of the scholarship is very uncomfortable to have this naked guy in the middle of the book. And so quickly you move to explain what the naked guy is doing. But in thinking about that image, I got to thinking about the three things you bring up, which are pain and shame and queerness. So first of all, it's really actually quite painful to be naked for three years. So you can think about this seems like a comic image, but also he's naked, he's barefoot, even the small everyday kind of actions of daily life become causes of great pain. And here I was thinking a lot with Elaine Scarry, whose book, The Body in Pain, has a wonderful chapter about torture. And she talks about how the repetition of really small movements even can become a cause of torture. So if you swallow 300 times, you start to become really aware of your throat and it starts to cause pain. So too, I would expect with walking around naked for three years. And then the second thing I started to think about was shame. And so the metaphor works in part because it's shameful to be naked. So for Isaiah to be shameful, to be naked for three years, then signifies the shame that's going to come on the nation. But what's interesting is the metaphor only works because it's shame at the expense of Isaiah himself. So the prophet is not just feeling pain. He also has shame uh, centered on his body. And then it's also a really queer image. And I mean this in two ways. So first, it's queer just in the sense that it's a peculiar, strange image. You don't expect to find a naked guy in the middle of your book. 
but it's also queer in the sense that it's enacting a kind of non-normative sexuality. So you have the naked male buttocks right in the middle of the book, and that's really what makes the image work, right? It's significant that you have this focus on the naked male backside as your central image, and you can connect that to other kind of queer slips where the male body comes through. But I think all of these are really kind of concentrated in this image of Isaiah's nakedness. And in thinking about it, I also have found it really helpful to think with this poem by Ann Carson, which is called The Book of Isaiah, where she also talks about Isaiah's body. So that later in the introduction becomes kind of a counterpoint I set against my own reading of the naked body of Isaiah. Yeah, one of the sort of central uh, thrusts of your work, it seems to me, is to force biblical scholarship to deal with the embodied nature of prophetic activity and, and all that that entails. And so the rush to metaphor is a way of not dealing with the, the real embodied aspect of what prophecy would do to a person and, and a particularly male-bodied person, uh, I think is quite important in this work. So you say that, that, that prophecy then is built on male bodies and the demands of prophecy cause the masculinity of these prophetic bodies to become unstable, that prophecy makes your, your manhood slip in some fashion or become unstable. So what is normative masculinity in the Hebrew Bible? And in what ways, broadly speaking, do the prophets depart from that? So in the Hebrew Bible, normative masculinity, or I also use the language of hegemonic masculinity, which is a term that comes from masculinity studies and sociology and kind of talks about the the nor the ideal of masculinity that then kind of sets the framework under which all other masculinity is articulated. So normative masculinity in the Bible is aggressive. It's dominating others. It has to do with honor. Sexual potency is important. Having children is important. Uh, loving women is not at all important, I would say. But this kind of powerful, dominant, controlling warfare is often a masculine realm. And then there are certain figures or figurations of the body that then are associated with this kind of ideal of masculinity. So being virile, being agile, having a whole body, uh, a non-disabled body is very important. I think there's been some great work in the intersections of disability studies and masculinity studies that have really helped me to think about how strongly the normative male body in the Hebrew Bible is an abled body. And then also the male body is supposed to, it's not supposed to be looked upon and it's not supposed to be penetrated. So the prophets, I would argue, and I do argue in my book, pretty much fail at all of these forms of masculinity. So you can think about a prophet like Ezekiel getting penetrated by the divine word, literally when he eats the scroll in this pretty phallic scene. You can think about, Jeremiah talks about how there's fire in his bones and it wants to get out and he's compelled to speak Pretty much everything about Moses's body is deficient or feminized or glowing or strange. Um, even a prophet like Hosea, I argue in the book, is opened up. So I think that throughout each of the prophets, so there's not each of the prophets deviates from the masculine norm in different ways. But there's a consistent pattern of ways in which the body of the prophet is pushed outside of the category of normative masculinity, is queered and then is opened up. Yeah, so you reference this uh, sort of hyper-masculinized Charlton Heston version of Moses that uh, perhaps people are as familiar or more familiar with than sort of the biblical model of Moses. How is Moses's, what is Moses's body like then, read from your perspective, and how, in what ways is Moses's body non-normative or, or uh, troubled as a masculine body? 
in Deuteronomy, when Moses dies, there's this nice note about how even though he's 120 years old, his eyesight hasn't dimmed and he's still virile and he still looks great, basically. And this is fascinating to me because up until that point, every time Moses' body appears in the text, there's some problem with it or at least something abnormal. So just starting from the beginning, when Moses is born, his mother says that he's good or tov, which sounds like a nice, cute thing you'd say when you have a baby. But actually, it's very strange to have this kind of pronouncement. And it marks his body, I would say, just as somehow other. Um, he has his heavy mouth and his heavy tongue, which might be a speech defect. It could be a physical defect with his mouth. It could be some kind of linguistic problem. But there's a problem with his mouth that's repeatedly thematized. He, during his call story, God temporarily gives him scale disease on his hands. We often gloss over the little God leprosy hand trick that happens in Exodus 4. Um, after he becomes a prophet, he's unable to hold his own arms up, right? He can't, in the battle with the Amalekites, he has to have his arms held up by others, so he sort of can't control himself. His close encounters with God cause his face to start glowing, and it's so scary that he has to wear a veil whenever he's around anybody. So he's got this kind of terrifying facial transfiguration. And then he also talks about himself as having a female body in numbers when he says, did I give birth to these people? Am I their nursemaid? And so it's a negative question, but it also shows, I would suggest, this kind of slippage into a feminine representation of his own body. And so in the book, I explore thinking about Moses's body as disabled, thinking about it as feminized, thinking about it as a queer body. But throughout, I think the consistent thing of Moses's body is it's just complete failure from the perspective of the norms of masculinity. So follow up to that in, in, in the other chapters, when you look at uh, uh, Hosea or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, it seems as though the prophetic word comes to these individuals and in its coming, it deforms in some fashion their normative masculinity. I almost hear you arguing, I don't know, maybe you mean to, maybe you don't, that with regard to Moses, even from birth already, he sort of fashioned maybe arguably as a vessel for prophecy in a way that these other prophets have to attain to in the course of their lives. Is that a, a good reading of what you're suggesting? Or oh, that's is he interesting. Just a, a, a more uh, thoroughly embodied version of this? I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but I really like that. Um, I think that in the call story of Moses too, that's where his problems with his mouth are first thematized. That's where you have the things happening to his hands. So there's certainly something for Moses about the calling that kind of centers the body and highlights those problems. But yeah, it's interesting to think about Moses even from the beginning as having a kind of bodily prefiguration. I have to think more about that, but I like it. Well, let's talk about Hosea. Uh, most people, when they come to the first few chapters of Hosea and his uh, the divine command for him to marry uh, a prostitute uh, would not automatically think of the genre of the horror film. Uh, but you find a very useful intertext here uh, to, to read with Hosea. You make use of Carol Clover's exploration of gender and horror to reread Hosea 1 through 3. So how did you come to find, first of all, what, what is her argument? How does she think about um, the male, the female, and, and their role in horror films? And, and how did you come to start to see her work as maybe opening up a new window onto what the dynamic taking place is in those first three chapters of Hosea. So Carol Clover's book has the brilliant title of Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender in the Horror Film. And it's just this fascinating study of the way that gender operates in the horror film. So she has a chapter on the slasher, 
uh, which is called Her Body Himself. And this is where she develops an argument that's maybe her most famous argument about the final girl, who's the only, if you think about any slasher film, right? A bunch of teenagers are in a house and there's a terrible killer. And you know the one that survives is going to be the brunette girl who doesn't have sex because that's who always survives the slasher. Um, and then she's a chapter on the possession film. And she talks about how in possession films, the female body becomes a venue in which male crises are worked out. So the female body is possessed by the devil or whatever to work through some kind of masculine crisis. And then she talks also about rape revenge films and about the role of the eye as an image in horror. And Clover herself comes from a background in Scandinavian studies. She actually did folklore studies. And so one thing that's interesting is I think that that kind of training allows her to see the deep structures in what otherwise is perceived as sort of a trashy contemporary genre. So that part of her work is really useful. What attracted me to it is that I love the way that Clover finds that in a genre like horror, which seems so clearly misogynistic, there actually are interesting and complex things going on with gender. So you don't have to be really smart to argue that the slasher film is misogynistic, right? You've got men chasing women around with chainsaws and chopping them up, right? That's clearly a very misogynistic genre. But Clover has this interesting argument about how lowbrow horror is actually doing more interesting things with gender and identity and identification across gender and things like that than we find in maybe more highbrow films, like something like Hitchcock. And this was useful for me in thinking about Hosea because when it came to Hosea, I felt really stuck because there's a lot of great feminist scholarship about how terrible the marriage metaphor in Hosea is, right? And so we have a lot of wonderful writing about how it's misogynistic. There's violence against women. It's like a battered relationship, all of that. And I think the scholarship is great. I also think that it's done the work pretty well. So I was interested in what else we could say about Hosea's marriage beyond just sort of saying this is a text that's very misogynistic. Because I don't know who at this point is interested in a feminist reading of Hosea, but hasn't thought about the beginning chapters as a problem. So looking for what else I could do and how else I could in particular think about bringing in that question of masculinity. And so here are Clover's work on the horror film. And in particular, the possession film was really helpful because she argues that in the possession film, something like The Exorcist, you've got the female body. So think about the girl, Reagan, who's possessed by the demon. And it, her body is what you think of if I say, like, I'm dressing up as The Exorcist for Halloween. But it's actually a film that's about the crisis, the spiritual crisis of the male priests around her. So you use the female body to work out this male crisis. So, two, I would suggest in Hosea. The central body is clearly the tortured body of the wife. So the body of Israel getting hedged up by thorns and ripped open and all of these terrible things. But actually, I think it's about negotiating a crisis of masculinity and thinking with Clover helped me to kind of think about Hosea in this way and see a way to think about what's going on with masculinity in the text. Yeah. And so the masculinity there would be the masculinity of the prophet. Or do we go beyond that and say this is uh, the masculinity of, of Yahweh itself? trying to work itself out in in the body of Israel as this uh, female partner to the divine male in some sense. In the book, I focus on the body of the prophet, but I think there's absolutely a huge crisis with the masculinity of Yahweh also. I think you could think about the contagion of toxic masculinity. I think also the masculinity of Yahweh's body has been talked about a bit more. So I love Howard Eilberg Schwartz's God's Phallus. And I think he does a great job of talking about that. And so I was interested in thinking too, in the book about tying that to the prophet, but you're right. The body of Yahweh is also a serious problem. 
In your next chapter, you start talking uh, and looking at Jeremiah, and uh, Jeremiah famously sort of embodies a, a non-stereotypical form of masculinity, perhaps, the weeping prophet. Uh, and you, you bring in here Freud and notions of hysteria as sort of non-masculine voice as a way of uh, centering your reading of Jeremiah. What does it mean to talk about this weeping prophet and how he departs from normative masculinity in light of those larger uh, psychoanalytic categories? So Jeremiah as the weeping prophet is a common reading of the text, and often it centers in particular on the passages I talk about in the chapter, which are the confessions of Jeremiah. And so we see Jeremiah spends a lot of time crying, a lot of time compelling. He also talks about being compelled to sort of cry out. We know that crying is a feminized kind of discourse in the Hebrew Bible. You can think about the way that lament is associated with a female voice. So I started thinking with all of that. But the more time I spent with the confessions, I also started to realize that structurally they're very similar to the speech of the hysteric, as is described by Freud and then also Freud's work with Breuer. And this is Freud's earliest work, which he actually later pulls away from, which I think is really interesting. But so like a hysteric, Jeremiah has this compulsion to speak out. His speech is this interesting mix of sort of incoherence, but also virtuosity, which is something that Breuer talks about in his patient Anna O. So she can't remember her native language as she'll speak in five other languages. I think also in both prophecy and hysteria, you see a kind of somatic compliance, which is where you're unable to say something. So then it is expressed symptomatically on your body. So your body in some way is speaking what your mouth can't actually speak. And Jeremiah with a fire in his bones, his incurable wounds. I think this describes what's happening with his body really nicely. The other thing that's interesting about the hysteric is the hysteric for the analyst is an object of both revulsion and desire. So Freud kind of starts to hate his hysterical patients, but he's also kind of obsessed with them. And I think this is actually a really interesting way to think about the relationship between Jeremiah as hysteric and his relationship to the deity. So there's this way that Jeremiah's speech is both very compelling and he's kind of a kind of a there's something revolting about his sort of self-objection and self-abnegation. So I think that thinking of Jeremiah together with hysteria not only lets us think about the sort of specific content of his utterances and about the voice as an extension of the body, but it also gives an insight into this kind of complicated way that power is worked out in that relation between the body and the voice. The prophet Ezekiel engages in probably the most profoundly strange physical demanding acts as part of his prophetic mission such that a lot of people have actually even uh, sort of written on the prophet Ezekiel as exhibiting certain forms of mental illness or, or wanting to, to reconstruct those uh, on the basis of this text. You look at Ezekiel's uh, prophetic synax or, or whatever we might want to think of them as in a lot of this concept of unmanning made famous by Daniel Paul Schreber. First of all, can you tell us who Schreber was and why his work, the, the, this Memoirs of My Nervous Illness, has been so influential? And then what it gets you for thinking about Ezekiel and his relationship uh, to Yahweh and what prophecy does to him as a, a masculine presence? Schreber was a German judge, and he was born in 1842, and he... Um, in 1884, he had a nervous illness. He recovered from it, but in 1893, he had another nervous illness, and he, against his will, was institutionalized. Because he was a judge, he was able to figure out how to basically argue for his being freed from the institution. And in 1902, he was freed, and he published Memoirs of My Nervous Illness, which is the text that I use in my chapter. 
Now, this is not a James Frey kind of memoir where you talk about how you once were deluded, but now you see the light and the nurse was so nice and all of that. This memoir is actually an explanation of his new understanding of the world. So Schreiber is a prophet of sorts in that he has this understanding and it centers on his body and it is not well received by his audience. So central to Schreiber's idea is that God is malevolent, non-omniscient, has two parts and is made of like radio waves. And this God is constantly sexually attracted to Schreber's body. And Schreber is then unmanned, which involves the transformation of his body into a kind of female body. So in order basically to save the world, he has to be unmanned by this divine penetration by radio waves. And this is both a cause of great pain and suffering for him, but also... There's this funny category of soul voluptuousness because the rays are also related to souls. Um, I realize I start to sound like Schreiber <laughs> as I describe this. But um, so he both is unmanned and tortured, but also he's getting a kind of pleasure from it. And so this memoir is explaining the system so that you can understand how the world really is. Uh, Schreiber does not get any converts, but his text does become really important in this interesting way in sort of 20th century psychoanalysis and critical theory. So. Freud never meets Schreber, but he uses Schreber's memoir as the basis for his arguments about the origins of homosexuality. And he has this sort of very unconvincing theory about Schreber and Schreber and his father. Um, Deleuze and Guattari do a lot with Schreber, and he's very important in their work. The idea of the body without organs, Schreber is one of their key examples. Judge Schreber is just popping up all throughout their text. People like Canetti write about Schreber. There's this whole kind of once you know Schreber's name, you start to find him all kinds of places. But I was interested in actually going back and using Schreber himself to think about Ezekiel, in particular because I think this idea of unmanning perfectly gives voice or gives a name to what Ezekiel is experiencing in those first five chapters of Ezekiel. So I've always been struck by the fact that during the Synax, Ezekiel never says anything. Jeremiah, except for to object to he doesn't want to cook on human excrement. So Jeremiah is whining all the time about how he hates to be a prophet. And Ezekiel's doing these things that seem really terrible, but his only objection involves a specific kind of excrement that's going to be used. So he's interested in thinking about what's going on with Ezekiel's body, what he's experiencing, the way that that penetration by the divine scroll is altering his experience of masculinity. And I found in Schreber, the unmanning, the sense of a kind of fundamental crisis of the world, the centering of the body, all that really helped me to think through what's going on with Ezekiel. So in your last chapter, you focus on queer theory more broadly and what the approach might bring to the reading of biblical texts and also what what the reading of the Bible might bring back to queer theory. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about what queer theory is or 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 the, the variety of things it, it might do in literary studies. Uh, and then what what adopting that approach actually tells us about the prophets that we might have missed before. And then maybe at the end of that, to think a little bit about how do we bring biblical studies back into sort of literary studies and, and, and cultural studies and what kind of conversations might we have around those issues? That's a long question. Yeah, and it starts with the trickiest one, which is what is queer theory, which is such a good question. But of course, part of queer theory is always queering the idea of defining queer theory, which is what I love about it. But also I teach a queer Bible class and we spend weeks at the beginning just trying to solve that kind of riddle. But so queer theory, it sort of it grows in an interesting way. It has it has a queer parentage. So it draws from feminist theory. It draws from gay and lesbian studies, LGBT studies. It also has a kind of 
uh, delightfully anarchic feel to it sometimes. So sometimes queer theory is interested in thinking about non-normative sexuality. Sometimes queer theory is interested in thinking about uh, challenges to dominant norms or power structures. Sometimes it's about sex and pleasure. Sometimes it seems like it's a little bit more abstracted from that than you would actually think. In my work, I found a couple of sources. I use a lot of different parts of queer theory in my work, but in this book, I think that Sarah Ahmed's work on queer phenomenology has been really helpful. So she talks about queerness as a trajectory and an orientation. So a queer orientation is to be oriented away from the dominant kind of trajectory. And she also talks about how that, I like that image because it both lets us think about queer as a kind of oblique or non-normative direction. And then it also lets us bring in non-normative sexuality more particularly. So I think this is really helpful in thinking about the prophets, both in the general sense of really strange and in the more specific sense of there's something non-normative, non-sexually normative about the way that they act and the way that they're positioned in relation to the deity. I've also found the queer work that draws on Deleuze and Guattari is really useful, especially in thinking about how the body is not just constructed around lack or absence, but thinking about the body as an assemblage. And then I've also found there's been some great work in queer theory on failure and the way that failure is queer or queer uses of failure. And so in thinking about the prophetic body as a failed masculine body, I'm interested in what you can do with that failure. And queer theory has helped me to really do that kind of thinking. I think the prophets in general are a great place for queer readings of the Bible, in part because the there's just so much going on. There's so much going on with genre. It's also a very masculine space. Most of your women are fantasies or they're dead. You can think about God kills Ezekiel's wife. Jeremiah is not allowed to get married. Isaiah has his prophetess, but it's not really clear what's up with that. So it's already a kind of cliched queer space. And I think bringing queer theory to bear on that is really interesting. To pick up on the last part of your question, I'm, I'm really interested in this relationship between biblical studies and queer theory. And I think sometimes in biblical studies, we feel like we have to just go out to the world and get the theory and bring it back and drop it on the biblical text and see what happens. And that can be fun. But I also think it's very important to think about what we can say back to those other conversations. And so I would suggest that the Bible is actually a great text for people in queer theory to think about and to think with, in part because it's outside of this kind of Hebrew Bible in particular is outside this sort of enlightenment trajectory that's been so soundly critiqued in critical theory. But also, I just think the Bible has a lot of underthought resources for thinking through what we might do with the category of queer theory. So I would love to see I have yet to persuade the world that the Bible is the key source for queer theory. But I think we've got a lot to offer. I have sort of a final question about this kind of scholarship in biblical studies. So you you note there at the end that sometimes uh, biblical scholarship sort of goes out into the world and finds an approach and then drops it on the text to sort of see what happens. I've often thought about this as biblical scholarship is very good at uh, plundering the Egyptians, that we we don't have any indigenous methods and we, we borrow from others. And that goes all the way back uh, to sort of the origins of modern critical scholarship and that, that kind of borrowing. But in, in practical terms, this is a difficult sort of thing to do because you have to have sort of two competencies in, in, in essence, and you have to find a way to allow or, or more maybe to, to have these two worlds talk to each other. And I wonder if you might say a little bit about did your graduate education prepare you for that? Did you intend to do that? Was this an accident that arose in the course of thinking about a, a dissertation length project? Um yeah, just what do we do as biblical scholars when we try to, to branch outside what what still, I think, is sort of a hegemonic 
historically driven approach to understanding biblical literature? That is definitely our challenge as a discipline. And no, my graduate program, while they allowed me to do it, they were not. I was in Near Eastern Studies and then in a critical theory program, and I was the oddball in both programs, right? And so I was I was always the outlier, but I just kept going with it, and I think it worked out. Um, when I was first in undergrad, I remember thinking that, oh, biblical studies is where you can do cool, edgy feminist studies and queer studies. And I kind of thought that was the middle of the discipline. I was very naive. And I came to realize I was at the end of a very long peninsula that sort of like stuck out of biblical studies. So I've had some great scholars that have encouraged me along the way. I think that it's it is difficult to talk to both audiences, but I think that also makes it very promising. And I think that there's a way that in some ways, this sort of use the metaphor of plundering. I like the metaphor of poaching. And in my book, I talk about Brian Masumi, who is an affect theorist and his sort of idea of gleeful poaching from the sciences into the humanities. And I think that actually maybe we should just embrace that as a sort of method. So I think some of the, you know, the enlightenment critique of the historical critical method, there's there's sort of a collapse of major structures of truth, right? It's coming to biblical studies, sort of. And I think that this is actually a great time to think about how we can borrow promiscuously and broadly and make that a kind of centered as a methodological approach. I found actually, I've been surprised at the reception, but I found that people are quite open as long as you can tie it to as long as you can have proficiency in both sides. So that's always what the challenge is. But I think it actually is a great way to position biblical studies as relevant and even essential in the 21st century, which is what we're all trying to do in some way, given funding for the humanities and all that. But I think this could really be a great way forward for us. Mm-hmm.